Revolution is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. On this week's episode of Digital Village, we have two interviews with representatives from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Leilani Albano is joined by Alexis Hancock to talk about immunity passports for COVID-19. And in the last part of the show, Rick is joined by Haley Sukayama to talk about how California's assembly killed the effort to expand broadband for all Californians and maybe what we can do about it. But first, Joanna Miller gives us a view from the outside. Welcome to A View from the Outside. I'm your host, Joanna Miller. And today our guest is Jenny Sauerklein. Jenny, tell us a little bit about what you do. My name is Jenny Sauerklein. I'm an experienced design trainer, facilitator, and consultant. And my ultimate passion in life is about creating connection. And that's the through line in all of my work. For those who may not know, what does experienced design really mean? I think a lot of people hear the word experience design and they initially associate it with UX, UI. So this interface between human and technology, and that's traditionally how it's been used. But there is a whole other field that's emerging that is around human-to-human experiences, and that's certainly my focus. Any time at which you are gathering people for a specific purpose, how do we think through the experience of the participants, and how do we use whatever means necessary that we have as facilitators and designers to deliver that experience in the most easeful and impactful way possible? I focus on three pillars. And those really form the foundation of this approach. So those three pillars are transformation, connection, and collaborative learning. When I say transformation, I basically mean impact or change. So I want to create some kind of fundamental change for that person or that group. Secondly is connection. So it's really about how do we leave feeling connected, bonded? How do we build trust and rapport in a group? How do we leave a group of strangers feeling like a community? And when we create connection, we create that psychological safety. I think that's when we see the possibility to unlock a group's highest capabilities and potential. And then thirdly, collaborative learning is really shifting this paradigm from what we call the sage on the stage, right? Like the person who's leading or facilitating having all the answers, the one-way lectures, the death by PowerPoint. We're shifting out of that to say, How do we harness the wisdom that's in the room? How do we see all of our participants or attendees as experts in their own right, as bringing a lifetime of experience into the room? And so how do we help attendees learn with and from each other? And I think that creates just a ton more interactivity and a ton more engagement and by default connection as well. One of the reasons I think that the stage on the stage events happen by default is that people are nervous to cede control. They don't want to introduce an unknown element. And when you seek control to the participants, you're introducing a whole lot of unknown elements. And then by default, you end up with this one person dominating and it being a very passive experience. So I'd love to hear some thoughts from you about one, how can we as facilitators or speakers get over our own fear? And two, how do we communicate to our audience that we trust them? Because it gets to the root of why we continue to perpetuate paradigms that we know are broken and don't work. It's much easier to have this one directional monologue than it is to conduct a multi-directional emergent conversation. But I think what a lot of people don't see is when you do that, eventually it makes it a lot easier on you. (laughs) 
as a facilitator. But there's actually a lot less you have to do. You're really creating space for other people to contribute in a way that can be so mutually reciprocal and beneficial. So that's a carrot, I would just say, in terms of like, why should you bother taking the risk? One of the practices that I hold near and dear is what I call guidelines. And so you might know them as rules of engagement or group agreements, right? I think about creating guidelines from two different angles. One is what are the mindsets that will help participants get the most out of this experience? So that's coming from like the positive proactive side. And then the other side is what fears, concerns, or resistances might this group be coming in with? And how do I create a guideline to address that right off the bat? People are coming in with, this is going to be a waste of my time, or this doesn't really matter. I'm not into this kind of thing. Like, How do you create a guideline that actually acknowledges that and invites people into a space where there's a new possibility? So some of my favorite guidelines, especially like when I do a conference, a friend is a stranger you haven't met yet. So that's creating this vibe of, oh, now when I look around and I see this whole group of strangers and they feel like an anonymous blob, oh, wow, there's potential friends, mentors, collaborators, partners, who knows who exists in this group. So I think when you set clear guidelines, you are basically transferring some of your power to the group. And that's a part of releasing that stage on the stage is inviting your participants to hold the leadership and the container with you. What else should we consider to craft a thoughtful virtual experience? Consider what is the context of my group? How long do I have? What is my intention with this connection? Is it just to create an initial foundation or is it to really drop people into a deeper place and create the foundations for long-term relationships? So I would use a wide and shallow approach if I had a bigger group or a group where people were mostly strangers and I wanted to create a lot of fast connections really quickly to what I call weave a web of connection. And then I would use a deep and narrow approach if I had maybe a more established group that was going to be meeting multiple times. Maybe it's just after a reorg or a merger, an acquisition, increasing levels of vulnerability as you go. So those are some of the things that I would consider for connection, especially in a virtual format. Give the listeners maybe one simple way, question or activity to build connection. One of my favorite ones is called Backstage Pass. Normally, we're on our screen. We've got this little window that we're allowing people to see into our worlds, which is just our immediate background. But there's a whole world going on behind that. So it's you get this VIP pass, you get the backstage tour. So we're showing someone, our partner or partners, just a little bit more about where we are, the space that we're in. And the ask is to show something that reveals more of your humanity, right? So it might be the fuzzy slippers you're wearing, or it might be your pile of dirty laundry in the corner, or it might be that stack of books by your bedside that you've been meaning to get to but haven't. So something that just shows us a little bit more of who you are and maybe the less polished version of you. And I find that when people do this activity, it just makes them feel so much more at home, so much more relaxed, like they feel seen and heard. And it's, oh, yeah, you're messy, too. Or when I do a demo, I make sure to show something that's, yeah, this is my pile of stuff. This is my gym bag that hasn't has been gathering dust for months. So I think that's really powerful. And the other one I call scavenger hunt. And scavenger hunt is basically where you can give people a couple of different items in categories and you give them say 90 seconds to go and forage for these items in their space. They come back in and then you can send them again into breakout groups of say two, three or four to share those items. So some of the categories I've given is something, an object that you made yourself. So like a DIY something, an object that you were given as a gift 
an object that you've had for 10 years or more. It gets people up out of their chairs. And then having those three different objects really gives you a broader snapshot into someone's life and who they are. So I find that's really great. But depending on your context or your group, you could be like, find an object that represents who you are as a leader. Find an object that represents something important about your purpose. Find an object that represents a memory you have about your childhood. So depending on what you want to emphasize, you could create different themes there. What are some guidelines you think we should have in mind as we proceed into the next few months of our global pandemic and by extension, our virtual experience? Mm. I think, again, we have some limiting beliefs around, can a Zoom call be transformative? And in my experience, it 100% can, if that's your intention and if you design for it. So one of the guidelines I love that leads us in that direction is expand your edge or be at your edge. Thinking about this sense of being in our comfort zone, right? We've all seen the diagram that's like outside the comfort zone is where the magic happens. It's where the growth and the learning happens. So how can we not only invite people to participate fully to bring their best, but to expect, anticipate, and embrace this sense of transformation, growth, and newness. Often those moments are uncomfortable, but if we can stick with it on the other side of that is something really meaningful, really profound and important for ourselves and for our lives. Thank you for leaving us on that hopeful note. If you want to find out more about Jenny and her work, please visit us at digitalvillage.org for a link to the show notes. I'm your host, Joanna Miller, and you've been listening to A View From The Outside. Until next time. Thanks, Joanna, for giving us a view from the outside. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on Fearless Radio on 90.7 FM, KPFK, Los Angeles. Digital Village has been bringing you the cyber news stories and in-depth interviews you won't hear anywhere else to help you navigate the latest in digital technology. Including the information needed to help you guarantee fair voting, keep the internet neutral, and protect yourself online. Please take the important step of giving a gift to help KPFK continue to bring you not only information, news, and culture, but also the sense of joy, relief, and community you've come to expect from us. You can donate right now to keep this glorious, independent, listener-sponsored radio flourishing. By going to kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Thanks Thanks again. again. Up next. The United States, UK, Italy, Germany, and Chile are among the growing number of countries around the globe that have shown interest in immunity passports, a system requiring people to prove their immunity to COVID-19 as one solution for residents returning to work, school, and travel. Earlier this year, California lawmakers introduced AB 2004, a bill that would authorize the use of immunity passports for the purpose of providing test results to individuals. But technology activists warn that health certificates could threaten privacy rights and end up worsening the COVID crisis even more. With us to talk about the issue is Alexis Hancock, staff technologist with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. She spoke with Digital Village reporter Leilani Elbano. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. As shelter-in-place restrictions begin to loosen up, governments are now looking into immunity passports as a way for people to re-enter public spaces. But are they a good idea? Well, generally, no. Immunity passports carry a very specific context towards the practice of claiming that we know what immunity looks like and creating techno solutions around that don't necessarily improve or make it concrete that we 
know what immunity means in COVID. What are the ramifications of that? Focusing on immunity passports creates a digital gate around people and creates a new class of citizens in the United States in particular. This new class of citizens will be people who have immunity or claim to have immunity through these types of technology and applications versus people who may not have had COVID yet or people who are currently infected. What I think a lot of people are looking for is this sense of normality. Immunity passports will not fix what's going on. Immunity passports will not bring the normality that people think it will bring. Actually, it will create a new norm, a new classification of going through society. Measures that we have now should be temporary. The normalcy that people are looking for is through testing, is through vaccinations, and through health research that is being done right now to try to understand this disease will bring back some stability. This new normal that people are trying to create will only exacerbate the issues that are going on right now, especially between marginalized communities who are also dealing with this infection in ways that are disproportionate. California legislators are pushing for AB 2004, which would empower the Consumer Affairs Department to issue these passports. Your thoughts? These credentials in general will not bring the solution that they're claiming will happen. Empowering the state to be able to roll out through a health pilot on shaky and unsure science will not bring the type of quality of life that they are claiming. These immunity passports are going to be stored on your phone. How does that work? The way that most people would carry that on their person would be through their mobile phones, of course, that you would download this application. And the way that they would roll this out through a mixture of information with health authorities and also with data that they may already have on you or data that they're incurring through your phone usage and tracking your location, tracking whether or not you've been tested, and combining all that data together within this health code or immunity passport that they're trying to normalize the moment. They are going to be basing these immunity passports on antibody tests. Tell us about Mm -hmm. what antibody tests prove, if anything, and are they reliable? So currently health experts say that antibody testing is very young with this pandemic. Antibody testing itself just shows whether or not you have antibodies. It doesn't mean immunity. So saying immunity passports within itself is a problem and unethical if antibody testing in itself is not sure you can get this disease again or not. And also, if they get it wrong, there's a potential of infecting people. Yeah, this could lead to a class of people who may get careless who may think that, well, I've had the disease already, I have antibodies, I'm immune. But since we're not sure what that means for this disease in particular, and that this disease has been baffling scientists in terms of its patterns of long-haul patients in particular that the CDC is studying, these people could potentially infect others or they could potentially get reinfected due to any carelessness that may come with thinking that you're already immune to the disease. On an ethical level, is it fair to require COVID testing to access an immunity passport if these tests aren't really accessible? Immunity passports has a lot of assumptions, right? So in order to move through society with a code on you, especially a digital code, you are required to have smartphones. A lot of Americans don't have smartphones. Smartphone ownership in the U.S. is, I think, is only about about 80%, if I'm remembering that statistic correctly. 
people who are least likely to have a smartphone in the U.S. are normally elderly people or people without homes. And they are at high risk. But if they don't have access to testing as easy as the rest of society, how do you deploy something like this without considering not everyone has access to broadband to get updates easily in their homes. Not everyone has access to testing. What is bug chasing and how can immunity passports promote that? So in 19th century America, we had a pandemic. We had yellow fever. And it was rampant. What ended up happening was citizens who had yellow fever or were able to prove they had yellow fever were able to go back in society and obtain work and obtain sustenance for themselves and their families. People who didn't have yellow fever, however, were told to stay at home. They were told they couldn't go out into the public. And it created two classes of citizens. This impacted, in particular, low-income immigrants who were also around at the time and impacted black people. All these factors came together where people infected themselves on purpose in order to obtain immunity and have all the reasonable access as a citizen that they wanted to if they were able to prove they had immunity. Those holes are going to be filled with problematic behavior only because of the fact that people are trying to survive. Well, if no immunity passport, what's the alternative at this time, particularly when people are just trying to lead the best lives that they can during a pandemic? There is no one answer. I believe focusing on the current inequalities in our society and helping people on the margins will help all of society. Helping people right now who don't have jobs would probably be way more beneficial than issuing immunity passport onto these people, creating a new worry, creating a new stressor. We're all stressed out right now. And it sounds tempting to have just a code that tracks and traces everybody and sees if they got infected or not. I'm saying that If people want to do their part, focus on those things, not necessarily focus on a techno solution and figure that maybe if I give up a bit of my privacy, this will be okay. I want people to focus on the inequalities and being able to actually all come together and actually create a multifaceted plan. And that's hard. And I know what we're asking and what we're saying is hard, but that's where we are right now. Well, that's all the time we have for now. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you. That was Alexis Hancock, Electronic Frontier Foundation staff technologist. She spoke with Digital Village reporter Leilani Elbano. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village here on Fearless Radio on 90.7 FM, KPFK, Los Angeles. In the last part of the show... As parents are relying more on the internet every day, trying to keep their jobs in the midst of the pandemic while remotely educating their children, the California Assembly was poised to okay a bill to bridge the digital divide and expand broadband and secure high-speed internet for families without normal access. Yet with just hours left in this year's legislative session, lawmakers refused to even consider a vote on the bill that would have remedied those inequalities. Bill SB 1130. With me to explain why this bill didn't see the light of day and who was instrumental in killing it is legislative activist for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Haley Sukiyama. Hi, Haley. Welcome to Digital Village. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I understand a deal to expand broadband would have secured more than $100 million a year for uh, high-speed access internet for families, first responders, seniors, educators across the state. What or who do you think killed the bill? 
Well, think is is the good operative word there. I do a lot of my work primarily in, in the California legislature, and a lot of what frustrates me most is sometimes we get these bills very close, and they uh, do not move forward, and it, we're in the dark about the process. What I can say and what I do know is that you said we had broad support for this bill. We had listened to concerns about it. We had offered amendments, and really it just got put on the last couple nights of the of the session there where you know they said we're not going to bring this up for a vote. We tried to lobby the speaker and assembly leadership pretty heavily. We think this is a very important issue to address right now, and we tried to get them to bring it up for debate, bring it up for a vote, and they just refused to, to do that. From my perspective, that is inaction on the part of assembly leadership and specifically Speaker Anthony Rendon. Ah, so we do have a villain in this melodrama. <laughs> Anthony R- Rendon, is it? Why do you think he did that? If I had a crystal ball and I had a clear uh, understanding of his thinking, then maybe I would be able to convince him otherwise, right? Certainly there were amendments suggested by the Assembly that we felt were more beneficial to big ISPs, to big Internet service providers, so people who are already supposed to be building out uh, Internet access to communities across California that don't have it. So certainly the amendments seem to reflect their interests more than what we see as the interests of the people of California. I don't want to allege anything, but certainly if you look at the amendments, that is who they seem to benefit. I think there is certainly cost associated with a big infrastructure project like this. And I do understand California is, you know, state budget is not that plentiful. But in terms of setting priorities for the budget, this is a priority for the Senate leadership for the governor. And I certainly think it would benefit Californians who right now are suffering from lack to high-speed broadband. I certainly would have liked to see it move forward. Now, under current law, the speed of up and downloads is a fraction of what was proposed. Is that a uh, hindrance to, say, kids getting an education online like it seems they need to do nowadays in not only California but around the country? Yeah, sure. So certainly the bill that we were proposing was uh, asking for a commitment to what they call 100 megabytes per second download and upload. So that is a very fast internet connection. Although with the demand that people put on their internet connection right now, that can go pretty quickly. I think the federal standard of broadband, they're, they're asking for 25 megabytes per second in download, one upload to translate that into English. I think that would barely support one high-quality video call, Um, and certainly I think we're looking at families all across the state, all across the country, who have two parents at home and two kids, and you're all trying to be on a video call at once. That's just not up to that. And actually, in state, under current law, internet service providers really only have to build basic internet access at 10 megabytes per second for download, one megabyte per second for uploads. It's just not adequate for what folks really need now when we're all at home trying to live our lives through the internet. That would have taken state money. Would that have taken a bond election to do that? So actually, the original proposal was that it actually wouldn't create more burden on state money. Later versions of the bills that headed to the assembly, they did look at other options, including, as you said, a provision that would enable local governments to finance with some state support. So we were looking at a a number of funding mechanisms. I'm not going to pretend we could get everybody good internet for free, but when we're looking at priorities for the state budget, I think it makes a lot of sense to put broadband high up on that list. Now, Senator Alina Gonzalez, she was one of the people that had built a broad 
broad coalition, along with EFF, of support for the bill. Some of those in the Assembly said that maybe it was a waste of taxpayer money, but Senator Gonzalez says that the lower speeds is a waste of taxpayer Mm -hmm. money. How is that? Yeah, I think if you're looking at value for dollar, we believe building at these higher capacity networks makes a lot more sense because if you look at the rate at which people are increasing their use of the internet, the increasing demands on internet connections, it is cheaper in the moment to build networks that have lower speeds because they are not as good. But over time, if you're looking ahead more than three years, five years, you really want to be able to not have to go back and upgrade all of those networks completely. The technology exists right now to spend some money, pay it off over the course of a long time, and really get uh, lasting value out of higher speed networks, and they'll serve communities for longer. Um, They will require fewer upgrades. And if you go with a cheaper option now in the short term, we're going to be back in, in just a few years and maybe five years looking at, you know, how do we upgrade our networks so that they can serve adequate connections to people who need them. Again, if you if you look at the way that traffic demands have risen in households, that's not going to stop. That's not a trend that's going to slow down anytime soon. It's like buying a, a really nice you know, piece of clothing or something that's going to last you a very, very long time rather than buying something that's maybe a little cheaper, but that will fall apart much sooner. Good analogy. In your article on EFF, you state that the pandemic has exposed how badly a private-only approach to broadband is basically failing us. And now it looks like the assembly failed us, too, is a big, big problem. The ISPs oppose letting communities build their own high-speed network because it's going to uh, take money out of their coffers? Businesses have their own sets of motivations, right? So I think there are two things to address here. One, uh, you raise a good question, which is why do they oppose local governments building their own networks? I think that's that's a competition issue, right? They, they don't necessarily want to see more competitors. Let's end on a positive note. How can we, the people, not let up on whomever is killing these bills, and what can we do to help? I think we're in a good to bring it back uh, next session. So certainly we will be out there asking for support again when the new session starts. I think contacting your representative, letting them know that this matters to you, that's what I would say. That's great. I've been speaking with Haley Sukiyama, legislative activist for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. On this week's episode, Joanna Miller brought us a view from the outside on experience design with Jenny Sauerklein. Leilani Albano and the EFF's Alexis Hancock told us about concerns around immunity passports for COVID-19. That's it for this week's edition of Digital Village. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In a Quantum World. You can hear all our episodes by subscribing to our podcast. We're going to kpfk.org, click audio archives, and search for Digital Village. You can also follow us on all things social using at Digital V Radio or find out more at digitalvillage.org. A special thank you to Joanna Miller and Leilani Albano. Digital Village and KPFK relies on you, our listeners. You can pledge your support for KPFK online at kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. And we'll we'll see see you online. online.